open discussion and debate help us learn what is true, breaking down rigid opinion and prejudice, in effect, shining light where it could not reach before. Welcome to This Week in Common Sense, starring Paul Jacob. This is for the second full week of May 2020. Paul writes commentary five days a week at thisiscommonsense.com, or make that thisiscommonsense.org. Both work. But this is the podcast, these are the big stories of the week, and Paul has a lot to say. So, Paul, what are we up to here? We are shining lights where they have not been before, and, you know, it, it kind of harkens to some somebody at some point telling people to, you know, do something where the sun doesn't shine, um, but we have had, what, a week or more, a couple weeks now of discussions about whether the president of the United States thinks that people should drink, you know, bleach and shoot up uh, Lysol and, uh, and put lights, you know, swallow Christmas lights <laughs> and then plug them in. But the reality is, and I, I, frankly, I knew none of this before the president said some things uh, at, a, at a news conference. I didn't have any idea that they were doing different things with lights inside the body and so on. Who knew? But uh, medical science, uh, entrepreneurs of one kind or another, um, just uh, inventors, people who think and, uh, and both think and live maybe outside the box, uh, and one of those people is Josh Disbrow, and he runs a company that is trying to do this uh, technology, medical technology, I guess you'd call it, and it seems to be promising, you know, and, and yet as soon as he heard President Trump say something about it on national TV, knowing the likely reaction well, all of a sudden, uh, he's a little bit concerned. So he goes to our wonderful social media, the ability for anybody to to say something and, and put it out there for others to consider, and does some videos explaining the technology. Well, those videos in the massive media reaction to what President Trump had to say were pulled down by Vimeo, by YouTube, by Twitter. And in essence, the argument for pulling them down is they aren't correct. They aren't true. As if there is one truth, as if the whole idea behind science is that there's one truth that we form some political consensus to reach and then deny any inquiry whatsoever to any other thought. And somehow that's not exactly the definition of science that I ascribe to. Uh, and so, you know, it, it, it's, and we've, we've talked about it week after week, because there's one 
one you know incident after another and at the base of every single one of them is the idea that there is one truth and even though we recognize even the people shutting these other things down recognize if you were to have a conversation with them that there isn't one truth that is just knows all we're we're dealing with a pandemic that doesn't happen every day a novel uh, coronavirus well it's novel <laughs> you know it's uh, we're dealing with new things science is about constantly questioning and constantly experimenting and going wherever the ideas and the research and the results dictate and never being satisfied that you know it all. And, and yet we have around that, we have developed the most wonderful new invention that America has brought to the world is just a robust embrace of freedom of speech, knowing that even when people say things that aren't so, even when people uh, present a theory that turns out to be dead wrong, it helps us reach the ultimate answer. And, and I shouldn't say it that way because it's not an ultimate answer. It's an answer on the way. It's a better way to look at it, to understand it. Um, and, and once we stop that free inquiry into our world and that debate, because it is about the wisdom of crowds and having millions and billions of individuals looking at it their own way so that we can form a better picture collectively. And yet we see this reaction to shut it down, to shut it down, to ban it, to block it. And that is, that is not the way we're designed in America. That's not the way our laws are designed. That's not how we have been at the forefront of science and industry and so on and so on. And it's just, it is, it is, you know, there's no battle more important because if we aren't able to debate and discuss, then we we might as well be in a totalitarian society. That's one of the, the biggest harms to any sort of top-down command economy or command society is that you don't have that back and forth that comes from free speech. Here we are uh, in the middle of a pandemic, and uh, and week after week, we talk about the videos that are being banned, and and these aren't. We're not talking about videos where they have some crazy conspiracy theory. We're talking about doctors who are running emergency rooms and do an hour-long video to talk about the coronavirus. We're talking about someone who has thrown himself into this technology and is just trying to explain the technology. No, shut down because it doesn't fit the narrative. And of course, as we mentioned weeks ago, and I just, you know, it's the kind of thing you, you think about at odd times and think, oh, no. Um, but weeks ago, realizing that the CEO of YouTube 
basically said that anything that doesn't match what's being said by the World Health Organization would be shut down, banned on YouTube. This is insanity. Yeah. Now, when I was a kid, like 50 years ago, I hate to say that, 50 years ago, uh, I associated with the will to censor, that is just to, to not deal with and suppress information and all that. I associated it with right-wingers and conservatives. I mean, I really did. Uh, that's how I grew up. Is that's Well, for instance, I was all around basically conservative people, and they occasionally said things that were pro-censorship. And I was, by nature, pro-free speech. I mean, that was just a... I, I don't even know if I ever b- believed in anything else. I, I don't know if I've ever in my whole life once suggested that a speech be banned somewhere. I thought it would be kind of gr- gruesome to even right. think about it. But nowadays, these motions to suppress, you might say, <laughs> seem to be coming from what we call the left. Yes. Now... I have a theory about this, but do you have a theory about it? Well, I, I don't have a theory about it. And, and you know, as we discuss different things, um, you've pointed this out several times. And, and you know, uh, once you think about it, you, you do think back to this book was banned in Boston. Of course, Boston is a pretty liberal city, but it was usually banned because it had too much sex in it, or it had dirty words, or it had something that people said, no, this is obscene. Um, And that's a difference too. These ideas aren't being banned because they're obscene, except obscene in the sense that they must not be said because they differ from the, the narrative that, that, those on high have decided uh, to be, you know, whispering or screaming during our lifetimes. And, I, you know, it's, it's a real, um, it, it is a switch in that now um, it comes more from the left, the, the pro-government left. Uh, there's a, a huge segment of the left that is hyper-concerned about the lack of privacy and about uh, free speech restrictions. But it doesn't get much play because it's not the left on TV for the most part. Um, But but I I don't think anybody could really argue with your basic point that it used to be almost invariably coming from the right, coming from conservative values that did not want someone else in the public square saying something that was, you know, raunchy or, you know, too purient. And and now it is you're out of step with Big Brother. And and of course, it's not, you know, there are people on the right. You know, I look at the the uh, vaccination uh, the anti-vaxxers, uh, uh, is that what they, they call them? Um, uh, yeah. and, and I'm not really with them, and yet I'm with them in the sense that I do not want the government telling everyone that what they have to stick into their arm. Um, and, you know, once you get rid of freedom, I'm not so afraid of all the vaccines. And, and you know, I wouldn't be completely shocked if I found out that there were more problems than I knew about. 
you know, life is a is a risky proposition. But the moment we're forced to all do something uh, by government decree, we we have problems. Well, very good. Um, on Tuesday, you wrote the rationale has ended. And here we're back to the main consideration of what is the official position on the lockdowns and what is the official position on how do we deal with the coronavirus? I have to admit, I'm not watching news conferences as much as I did at the beginning, but there don't seem to be the kind of questions that I, I think should be asked. The whole idea of the lockdowns was to flatten the curve. It made sense. Hospitals were going to be overwhelmed. Uh, in fact, you know, how do we get enough uh, ventilators? How do we get enough beds? And they're they're building, you know, makeshift hospitals and sending the what is it, the USS Mercy to New York, and you know, all those things made sense because my goodness, if this if it's this percentage and this percentage goes to the hospital, that's tens of thousands more than we have beds, and you know, and it's something to get awfully concerned about. And so we expand all those things. Uh, and of course, in the process, essentially shut down our, our medical system, our medical care system, um, to deal with one element of it. And, and yet now we've, we've gone weeks and weeks and weeks and months, and people don't want to open up. And I think part of it is there is the fear that if you open up, then you get blamed for whatever deaths. Well, by its very nature, that's not because there's going to be more coronavirus deaths, no matter what we do. And of course, there could be other deaths that happen if our economy just falls apart. Um, and and so, but but who's going to get blamed for what? Well, if you're a politician. You don't want to be the first one to open up the economy because, you know, when so-and-so makes a few bucks, he may, may not give you credit, but you know that someone could say, well, this many people died because you opened it up too early. And it becomes a very political calculus. And I think, I think people who've watched the news conferences um, realize that we've got a real problem in this country in the sense that I watch them and I just don't see anybody that I feel like represents me, not the media, not President Trump, not the head of the, not Fauci, the head of the CDC. And I'm not saying that sometimes they don't say things that are worthwhile. I'm not trying to trash everyone who's been involved. It's just that they seem to have staked out certain positions professionally, politically, uh, pretty much politically. And, and that creates a, a huge problem. And now, of course, people don't want to open up. And, and look, I'm no, I'm no expert on any of the medical stuff, but it seems like this virus isn't going to go away just because we all stay inside. And that I thought from the very beginning, it makes some sense if there's an end date. But when people talk about, oh, we may need to do this for six months or a year or 18 months, who is it that, I mean, when we're inside and they're just pumping, you know, Federal Reserve notes into our bank account every week so that we can buy, you know, have somebody come by and drop off the Chinese food or whatever, um, or we go to the grocery store very carefully and we buy a bunch, 
at a certain point, where are the people to get the stuff to the grocery store? And where's the, you know, and, and, and how do we have this wealth for the government to be sending out to everybody if nobody's working? It doesn't add up. And it's scary enough that our politicians kind of think in this short-term way, because you can see they're thinking about, I don't want there to be a crisis that I get blamed for when we're going to have an election in November. That's a, it's easy to see that. And you really wouldn't, you know, it doesn't mean they're, they're not trying to do the right thing, but they're going to be aware of that. Trust me, they're aware of that. But it's, it's also, you know, why, why doesn't the media ask that question? Why haven't they asked it right away? I think that there tends to be, and, and look, I'm on the, on the side of, hey, we don't want too much government. And so I'm certainly going to see all the problems right off the bat, although this, you know, this is common sense. This is common sense.org. We early on were uh, one of the things that I said was I'm going to give any politician as much of the benefit of the doubt as I possibly can on any mistaken decision that they entered into with the, the, the best intentions. And that obviously if they're corrupt and so, you know, then we're going to hold that against them. But that we ought not be looking at, oh, so-and-so made a mistake. He should have done this instead of this. You know, 15 more people died. That's all his fault. He's a murderer. You know, throwing around body counts and acting like people are killing people because they either want to stay at home or they don't. They want to open their business. I think all of these people are trying to do the best that they can. And, and I'm sure there's an exception to that. But for the most part, that's what we're trying to do. And so um, why no real recognition that the whole premise of the lockdown, it's, we've done it, it's over, now it's time to take the next steps, and yet there's this big fight. And it's, it's uh, I'll tell you, it, it, it's interesting to me to just get a sense because I, I feel like I don't have a sense and maybe none of us have a very good sense of, of the devastation that hasn't hit yet. For instance, you know, it, it, there's a delay oftentimes in life. You know, if you smoke cigarettes, um, you know, it's not like the first six months smoking that all of a sudden you have lung cancer and you have, you know, emphysema and so on. A lot of times we, and, and look at our debt. Who knows when our debt will just explode in a really ugly way. But I'm pretty convinced if we continue to just pile it on and pile it on, there will come a day. And, and you know, so much of life is like that. And, and it seems to me that, that when we don't have, again, a non-political hey, let me ask you a couple questions about when is this lockdown going to end and how does this work? And, and if our economy is devastated, how will we be able to sustain this type of approach? And I just have never heard that. Almost everything has been listened to the doctors. In this case, uh, you know, uh, doctors who are more into public health than, than you know, you think of your you know, your uh, pediatrician or your general practitioner or whatever. Um, 
but they don't know everything. They don't know everything about non-medical affairs. And there's a lot of non-medical affairs involved in a pandemic. And of course, the other thing that doesn't get mentioned, it seems to me, is that when has this ever been done before? When in the history of man has an entire society, most of the globe, shut down and sheltered in place over a, a virus? You might, you know, shelter in place because there's a bombing run over you or, <clears throat> you know, there's some other, there's about to be a hurricane or something. But for months and months, to avoid a virus that almost everybody recognizes is still going to be there when you're when you know when eventually you've got to come out because you know you you can't just live forever without any productive activity um, to sustain your life and yet and yet the the the, the silence is there not just from the politicians but from the entire political class that's asking the questions of the of the politicians the media Fauci admitted just yesterday I think it was that uh, there may never be a, a vaccine for the coronavirus right we can't count on it at all and yet the reason some people are suggesting 18 months of, surely of lockdown we'll, is surely we'll have wait. a vaccine by then would you mind working on that Tim and just surely you'll get it done by <laughs> then I mean what do you want no, it, it is true that uh, uh, from from what I hear, no coronavirus has a vaccine. And and of course, I don't know, this may be different in some way, but I, I think every time you hear this hype and and, you know, look, I would if I if I were president of the United States, I wouldn't have said things about. I forget the the uh, malaria drug they was first talking about, which still seems like a very helpful drug in the situation. But but you don't want to promote one thing over another until you've seen, you know, tests and, and so on. But at the same time, we have seen promoted, I think, throughout, you know, ubiquitously in the media. We have seen the promotion that there'll be a vaccine. And it, it's sort of like a, a cure for cancer. I remember Biden early on in announcing his run was one of the things he's going to do is we're going to find a cure for cancer. And this idea that if we just put a whole bunch, a whole big load of cash together and did like a moonshot cure for cancer, that we'd cure it. And of course, there's been tremendous progress in fighting cancer. And, and that's been helped by money, but it's, it's helped by the fact that we're trying to cure it. But when politicians act like we're just going to do it, when, of course, they're not doing any of the science, they're just throwing our money at it, it's, it's insane. And, and so it, it, this seems to be somewhat the same type of thing. They've also been pushing uh, respirators a great deal. That's been sort of one, of one of the most important things that could possibly be given to the patients. But it turns out they're very ineffective. Uh, and in fact, in many ways, contraindicated by the actual late stage disease. You hear a lot less about those now all of a sudden, but, but no explanation as to why you're hearing less about them. Yeah, and it turns out that's probably hypoxia, not pneumonia 
that's the cause of the, the, the really bad condition at the end of uh, the coronavirus infection in people who have comorbidities. Okay, so I've just said a mouthful. That's probably a bad <laughs> idea. Let's skip Wednesday for a moment because that's, that's about Bill Barr. Uh, and I don't think he has anything to do with the virus. But uh, on Thursday, he went back to the uh, yes. coronavirus. The old, uh, the cure shouldn't be worse than the disease. There seems to be a lot of hand-wringing, maybe even a little bit of gnashing of teeth, because the states, the governments, aren't getting the tax revenue. I don't know if you're aware of this, Tim, but apparently it's something that we do in buying and selling and producing products and, and growing food and all this different work that people do produces tax revenue for state and local governments. And so the virus, this terrible virus, has destroyed the revenue coming into state governments. Now, the virus, it doesn't seem like would destroy the revenue if people weren't locked down if they could continue to work, at least the healthy people, and as Sweden has done, as we point out, um, a number of the states have really avoided massive orders locking everything completely down. Uh, one of those states is my the state I grew up in, Arkansas, and I know a number of people who've continued to work every day there, some who are compromised and have taken, you know, some, uh, they didn't stay home, but they've taken some real precautions to avoid contact and so on. And this is the thing that, that you see a lot, just as a little tangent point. People want to live. They want other people to live. I know there are idiots here and there in the world, but they really are not the, the majority of folks. And so, so much of what I think has been harmful is in not recognizing that all of us are trying to do the right thing. So give us information and let us act with that information in our own best interest. And those are the people around us. And that would mean that a bunch of, of companies would have closed or shut, you know, reduced their hours or done things differently. Some of them would have closed and then two weeks of pacing around <laughs> You know, the, the business owner were going, oh, I know what we can do. And they would have reopened. But let people do that. For one, then we wouldn't have to think about how we're going to somehow just print up a bunch of money and capitalize every business in America. I mean, that's the way they acted with all the stimulus funds, that we're just going to give everybody the money they need. Well, that turns out to be a heck of a lot of money. And it also encourages people not to be thinking about how they can reopen their business and not to be thinking about, okay, how do I make my way in this world now that there's a virus out there that's a little bit dangerous, at least especially to some folks. And all of a sudden, all these actions would take place. Instead, we're almost told, hey, turn on Netflix, make some popcorn. You don't worry your pretty little heads about this. We, with experts galore, are going to make all the decisions, and you better just stay inside. And meanwhile, the economy is crumbling, and, and there's a, a lot of problems. And we have, for the first time in history, 
all of history, as far as I can tell, have decided to quarantine the entire society. Instead of quarantining those who are sick, instead of quarantining those who are sick and in essence quarantining, you might use a different term, but keeping people who are compromised and vulnerable away from people who are sick and away from the society as a whole. Because of course, they estimate half, maybe more, uh, of people who have the coronavirus show no symptoms. So could be out there um, shaking your hand, uh, you know, and, and, and getting somebody sick. All those actions, in essence, our government has, at, at all kinds of levels, said, we're, we're, we've got everything under control. We will make the decisions. And it's, it's a recipe for disaster. And of course, it's going to be a big battle in Congress because Pelosi's already talked about another $3 trillion to be spent to bail out cities and states. And of course, I suspect that if it's done in the way Pelosi wants to do it, you may see that the huge pension benefits that the state of Illinois and the city of Chicago have promised to their public employees, especially their teachers, which they never in a, in, never put the money back for it. So they have ripped off these people. It's not that these people don't deserve it. They were promised it. But the people who promised it to them did not put the money back. And I don't want the, some little game now to where we're going to somehow bail out those cities and states. Um, I want them to face the music and come up with this money and, uh, and may take some time, but something needs to give here other than more bailouts. And the worst part about these bailouts, and this isn't something we said in any of these, uh, uh, this week's commentaries, but this idea that we're going to bail out everybody doesn't make the bailouts any better. It's not gonna, that's not gonna, the problem wasn't when they bailed out all the banks that they didn't bail out the rest of us. The problem was they bailed out the banks. We can't bail everybody out. And that's, that's kind of where we are right now. Um, hey, we've made terrible decisions. Uh, let's blame it on this pandemic and then give us a bunch of money so that we'll just wash everything away. And I think what we'll be washing away, of course, is the value of the dollar. And and uh, they, we're in for, I think, some really serious times ahead. And most of the damage, as we point out in Cure and Consequences, has not come from the virus. It has come from government's reaction to the virus. And that's something as we point out, that we can affect. It's awfully difficult to magically come up with a cure for a virus. It should be, at least, easier for us to control our own response to that virus and not create bigger problems uh, than the medical care that we're going to have to provide and the terrible uh, reality that people are going to die. Um, so that's, that's something that a more sensible, realistic approach, as opposed to politicizing everything and blaming each side for whatever death count you can slap at them, uh, 
would be a better approach. A very different subject was handled on Wednesday with uh, Bob Barr and the reaction to Bob Barr by a very famous or once sort of famous, or maybe he's not very famous. I've known about him for years, Chuck Todd. (laughs) I knew Chuck Todd going all the way back to his time with the hotline, which was a political newsletter that was faxed every afternoon. You'd get a fax during the Mm -hmm. weekday with the latest on political news. And uh, when I was working in DC uh, running US term limits, we got the hotline. Chuck Todd was not a big fan of term limits, but you know, reasonable people can disagree about any issue. The bigger problem is that Chuck Todd is either not a fan of the truth or not a fan of putting in enough effort to have any clue whether you're telling the truth or not. And here's here's the story. And of course, it's been around. So most people, I think, probably know the basics of the story. But stay with me because there may not be you may not have heard every uh, every little wrinkle and it's of, it's of note. Bob Barr was asked by a CBS News reporter, how do you think uh, history will look on your decision to drop the charges against General Michael Flynn, uh, who was Trump's first national security advisor? And Bill Barr said, well, you know, uh, history is written by the winners, but went on to say, hopefully, Uh, history will be fair and will say that we upheld the rule of law. He used that particular phrase, the rule of law, and then went on to say he thought an injustice had been done and they undid it and that that was a good thing. Now, you can agree or you can disagree with the attorney general about whether that was a good thing or a terrible thing. But Chuck Todd did something totally different. Chuck Todd took the initial comment made by Barr, and and I say he took it. He well, we'll, we'll get to what he says, but but he takes that and and plays it just the part where Barr says, you know, the winners will decide. History is written by the winners, and they'll decide. And he says to Peggy uh, Noonan on Meet the Press. I was struck, Peggy, by the cynicism of the answer. It's a correct answer, but he's the attorney general. He didn't make the case that he was upholding the rule of law. Now, the reality is that's exactly the case he made. And it's not as if because I've, and you can go to thisiscommonsense.org, And you can go to Chuck Truth, where Chuck Todd is chucking the truth out, and you can hit the link and you can go look for yourself. But there isn't even a second of pause before Barr goes into this was to uphold the rule of law. And so for Chuck Todd to come out and say, oh, this is, you know, this is, uh, just outrageous that he would be so cynical and not care about the rule of law when he is presenting his audience some ridiculous cut that ignores what was actually said. And in fact, it's interesting to me 
that on Morning Joe, Joe Scarborough had this to say. He plays the same tiny cut that is a misrepresentation that even NBC and Chuck Todd today finally admit. And Scarborough says, that tells you all you need to know. He plays the little clip without anything about the rule of law, <clears throat> and then he tells his audience, that tells you all you need to know. Might makes right, the rule of law doesn't matter. So it'd be one thing to, if, if Barr had said that off the cuff and hadn't mentioned the rule of law, it'd be one thing to just beat him up like a straw man that, oh, he doesn't care about the rule of law, when, of course, he might care about it. It might just be that he gave a glib answer. But when he gives an answer that specifically cites the rule of law and you cut that out and then beat him up for not saying it, that is just beyond the pale. And, and um, it's interesting that it took our commentary came out on Wednesday. Tuesday afternoon late, Chuck Todd on his show, his daily Meet the Press show, finally apologized and explained it that they had two clips that they could pick up from CBS News. And one of them was just that short clip that cut Barr off mid-comment. And <clears throat> that unfortunately, that's the one they used. Now, first of all, CBS probably shouldn't have made available such a short clip like that um, without the full context. But, of course, time is money, and you know maybe they felt like people needed that. But it wasn't CBS who made the charge that Barr didn't say something. You can't grab a clip of someone that's you know eight seconds long and then from that claim that they didn't say all these other things that you have no clue whether they said or not. And the only way you would know whether Barr said anything about the rule of law or not, because his argument wasn't, hey, in that sentence, he didn't say anything about the rule of law. In those 4.7 seconds, he didn't say anything about the rule of law. No, Chuck Todd said he made, you know, he said nothing about the rule of law. And, and so to make that claim, you have to have watched the whole interview. You have to have a wider sense of what's going on. Otherwise, it's just outrageous. You can't just make things up. That's what Todd did. And it took him two days. Now, when, when that aired, immediately there was pushback. There was pushback from Trump. There was pushback from Trump people. There was pushback from other folks who just watched it and said, wait a second, you're misrepresenting. Two days before Chuck Todd apologizes. And then his apology seems to me to be garbage. The other thing is, if you look at the statement that was put on the transcript online, they released the full transcript of the show every week. And I looked there and at the very end, they added something that says we inadvertently and incorrectly edited or whatever, you know, cut that portion. 
but it doesn't give you the full portion. If you have slandered somebody, basically, if you have lied about what they said because you did not present what they said, to leave that transcript where you're still saying all those things and at the end you make some admission that something was cut, why didn't they provide, we cut this, here is the full thing that he said. Because if you had that there, no one has to go, no one has to click on anything, no one has to search for anything, and they will know right off the bat that Chuck Todd and NBC News is full of it. It's just he he should be fired or reprimanded in some big way. But how would you at NBC? Because the whole operation is just it's just pitiful, pitiful and and partisanly pitiful. Well, that's for sure. Well, I think that uh, if history is written by the winners, it looks like the news is written by the losers. <laughs> well, it has been has been since uh, since election day in 2016. That's, I think that's I think what Trump would say. That is something that we stayed up late. You stayed up with me. You had a you're, you're on the West Coast, so you have a, a easier time. But it stayed up very late doing a commentary for the day after election day, and that was the close, I believe, of that commentary was saying that the media lost the election. Um, and I think in some ways, uh, to just, you know, without caring who wins, I think you could step back and say, the media continues, I think, to help Trump, because the media is not terribly popular. And they constantly are fighting with Trump. And constantly, it seems to me, doing things that that feed his narrative instead of their own. And, and of course, the, the truth is the best they could do for the country, whether it helps Trump or hurts Trump, is, is uh, for the voters to decide. But the best thing the media could do is stop with their narratives and stop with their biases leading the news and just go report. Just report it and let people decide if the country, you know, if, if they think Trump is as bad as they think he is, then tell the country and step back. And, you know, the more they color it, the more they allow this to be a fight between the media and Donald Trump, I think the, the better Donald Trump's going to do. Yeah, that's probably true. Um, of course, you know me, I, I think that the media is this crazy largely because they're still carrying water for the CIA, but I could be wrong about that. <laughs> <laughs> well, and we should get to our last commentary of the week, which is kind of funny in a really not very funny way. <laughs> it's called pocket prohibition. And, you know, throughout this pandemic, the FDA, the Food and Drug Administration, has not looked very good. <clears throat> they have occasionally looked a little better because they've done things like say, hey, we're going to do away with all our regulations that slow down coming up with a new vaccine or coming up with this or that. Uh, they have eased some of their regulatory burden, and that has been nice. But of course, 
it also shows what a drag on progress the FDA is. But here is something different. The FDA now wants to regulate backpacks, not just the backpack, but they're more laser focused on the backpack pockets. See, there are pockets in backpacks, inside pockets and outside pockets. And in those pockets, things can be hidden. Little things, round things, long things, a pencil, a, you know, a rubber band, all kinds of things could be put into those pockets. There, in fact, there's no regulation, absolutely no regulation on what's put in pockets on backpacks. It's like there's no government expert when a kid puts his books and whatever else into the backpack. Who from the government is there to watch? No one. It's totally unregulated. And so the FDA is worried that kids might hide e-cigarettes in their backpacks. Now, now I think we've reached the real serious stuff. Anyway, that's where our FDA is at. That's in the middle of all this. The FDA wants to expand its authority. And what they're doing now is just writing nasty letters to different manufacturers, suggesting that they have to do this, this, and that, and the other regarding pockets on their backpacks. But who knows when the FDA will start to clamp down a little harder give them an inch and they'll take a zipper. Uh, but, uh... <laughs> no, it's, it's, you know, you would think someone at the FDA would like have a memo going around saying, Hey, there's just certain things that we don't look so good anyway. Let's not try to push it in these particular ways. But I think, I don't, I don't think that's how they think at all. It's always, how can we further control the world in such a way that that everything is wonderful except there's no innovation and you can't even get a backpack made without, you know, all of a sudden backpacks are going to cost twice as much because of all the regulatory processes that go into them to prevent you from putting something in a pocket that the government might not want you to have in a pocket. Well, I guess that was the second week of May, right? It was. Wasn't the greatest week ever. <laughs> but, then, you know, it, it. the world is getting a little warmer. And I know that global warming is a terrible thing, but I'm looking forward to summer. Should should have some good effects on uh, viruses, uh, we're hoping. And uh, with all my medical knowledge, I'm hoping. And uh, and it's, uh, it's nicer. You don't have to wear uh, sweatshirts as much and so on. Very good. Very good. Well, I'll see you next week. <laughs> <laughs> well, that sounds very good. Thank you for joining Paul and me for This Week of Common Sense for the second week of May 2020. My name is Timothy Vericola. You can find me at, at Workman and Workman.com. That's Workman with an I, not an O. And you can find this podcast on SoundCloud.com and on Stitcher. And, you know, if you look around elsewhere, you're going to find it there, too. <laughs>